0: Turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're just going to read five verses this morning Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. I'm going to ask a question before we start, though. Who wants peace? Who wants peace? Got a few hands. The rest of you are like, oh, this is interactive. <laughs> who wants peace? Everybody should raise their hand. Everybody wants peace, right? How many of you prefer fighting? We got, a, we got some honest people there. Some people who know themselves well enough to know they like fighting with people. <clears throat> but it's not fun being in conflict with people after a while, is it? <clears throat> and yet there's a real a real temptation to it. That's why one of the things that is a requirement for officers in Christ's church is that they not be pugnacious, that they seek true peace. That's why we're given the command as far as it you know rests in your power to be at peace with all men. <clears throat> But peace goes further than simply not fighting with other people, not being pugnacious, right? When you think, when I ask you who wants peace, it might be that you uh, immediately thought of something very different than not fighting with your brothers and your sisters, or not fighting with your husband or your wife, or with your coworkers. It might be that you thought of the kind of peace that goes much deeper than that. And that's the kind of peace that we are talking about in this passage today, true peace. In fact, it's peace that passes understanding. You guys remember that song? I've got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. You guys remember that one? Well, in the version that we have, it's translated, the peace which surpasses all comprehension. It passes understanding. It surpasses comprehension. What sort of peace is that? That's a peace that is deep in your soul. A peace of mind, right? A peace of heart. A peace in your conscience. And so, as we begin to read this text, I want you to think what stands in the way of that kind of peace. There is actually a hint with. The things that stand in the way of peace with your brother, that's a subset of this kind of peace. So the kinds of things that stand in the way are the same kinds of things that are going to stand in the way of deep and true peace. And I think one of the best ways to sum up what stands in the way of peace is simply to say when things that are important or that you care about are threatened. When things that are important or that you care about are threatened, are you at peace then? That's when we face the most temptation to turn aside from God, not trusting Him, that's when we are most at risk of not being at peace, not having this true and abiding peace. Well, let's stand together as we read Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, if you weren't here or you don't remember a few weeks ago when we were reading the uh, earlier passage, part of this chapter, you remember that Paul, the Apostle Paul, urges Two women in the church at Philippi to get along with one another, to be at peace, to have unity. Euodia and Syntyche, their names are recorded for us. And that's where we focused on being at peace with one another. But now he takes this a step further into a peace that goes deeper than simply peace with one another, now he takes it into a new level, into the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension, saying that it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now he starts by saying, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And that is a, that is such an important part of this passage. We looked at that two weeks ago. The Lord is near is not meant to be a threat. The Lord is near is meant to be something that gives you peace. The Lord is near is meant to be something that gives you a reminder of what you're called to and why and how you are able to pursue it. And so, for the Lord to be near, he follows that immediately with this command, be anxious for nothing. Now, anxiousness, of course, is the opposite of being at Peace in your spirit, right? When you are anxious for something, what are, you, what are the kinds of things that you do physically when you're anxious? Probably all of you have different things. No examples. What about biting your fingernails? Yeah, hey, I just saw that one. I, yep. Biting your fingernails. Nobody look at mine. What other sorts of things do you do when you're anxious? Fidget? No. no, Don't sleep? What? Eat? I've probably told you this before, but when I first started preaching, uh, I was very, very anxious. And I would get... Uh, a cramp in the back of my neck at the very top of my neck, right by my head, and it would extend all the way down my back until I couldn't move my whole back. It was just one by the time I was done preaching. Because I was anxious. Anxious. Now, if I explain to you the circumstances... Some of you are all like, yeah, standing up in front of people makes me do that automatically. But but I'm sure I could build up much sympathy for my anxiousness. You know, it's kind of nerve-wracking to be planting a church, to to your first service, to stand up, wonder what the future holds. It's kind of nerve-wracking to start a service with your wife and your son and your two neighbors and all the other chairs empty. You have to start the service because it's time. makes me anxious anyway. I don't know if it would make you anxious. But, you know, I feel very justified in being anxious when I face things like that, right? And yet the command here is be anxious for only things that are very good, right? I mean, I'm obviously concerned about something good happening, and, and that's that's good, right? No, the command is be anxious for nothing. Did you kids catch that? I was wrong, right? It doesn't say be anxious only for good things. Now, what sorts of good things are we first uh, going to face anxiety about in this life, do you think? What sorts of things make babies anxious? Food. Food. Now, when we live in America and there's more food than we know what to do with, and lots and lots of people are fat, it's easy to forget that food is something that you can be anxious over getting enough of, right? But let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Are people still anxious about food in the United States? There's still a lot of anxiety about food, right? What's in this food? Is it truly healthy for me? What was this animal fed? Is this actually organic beef, organic chicken? The answer, by the way, is no, it never was. It never was, ironically, uh, Because all of the organic corn was not organic either, that they were being fed. Sad, isn't it? All that anxiety for nothing. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a similar command to what Paul says here. What What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He doesn't say be anxious for nothing, but what does he say? What? Yeah, he says, do not worry. Why do you worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to put on, the clothes? He says, "Look look at the flowers, look at the grass in the field. Look at the birds. Look at creation. Look how God provides. Look at the beauty of Creation, And they aren't worrying. The flowers aren't worrying about how they're going to be dressed. And he says, but even Solomon in all his splendor. And Solomon, you remember, was wealthy beyond even our imagination. Had all of the most beautiful, wonderful clothes that money could buy. And he was never dressed as nicely as one beautiful rose and you can see that can't you you see a flower that's in that's in full bloom and you see the beauty and you realize it is truly gorgeous it is truly amazing and so jesus gives us this command do not worry how you're going to provide for yourself because god is the one who provides for all of creation and he will provide for you. And here Paul gives us this reminder that the Lord is near. Why is that important? Well, it's it's a reminder that he is the one who provides for us. And that's why he then says, okay, the Lord is near, so go to him. <laughs> right? Turn to him. If the Lord is near, Why would you sit there worrying instead of just going to God and praying? Supplication. What is is supplication? He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, if you're anxious... And you have, you have fears and you have worries. What's your natural inclination at that point? I mean, aside from beginning to bite your fingernails. There's, there's things that go beyond the physical acts, the, 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 the sort of subconscious, unconscious, physical things that we do when we are anxious. It extends into our hearts as well, right? And we begin to do other things. What is your natural reaction when you're anxious as you begin to interact with other people? Do you snap at them? Do you become angry and short with people? Do you become discouraged and depressed? What is it that you turn into when you get anxious? There are many, many ways that we try to do something, anything, to handle our anxiety, but without turning to God. Forgetting that He is near, and thinking we just have to live with anxiety. We don't have to live with anxiety. As a matter of fact, we're not supposed to live with anxiety. And you say, well, that sounds great. Nobody wants to be anxious, right? I mean, there's counselors to help with anxiety because everybody knows living with anxiety is no fun. Sounds great, but how do I actually stop living in this anxiety? I mean, after all, you said at the beginning that the things that tend to cause us to be anxious are things that we that are really important, or that we really care about, that are being threatened, right? What makes you anxious? Well, this is going to connect into the promise that he gives us here, that our hearts will be guarded and our minds will be guarded. Okay, but before we dive into that, I want you to first see that he says that this peace of God is beyond comprehension. It passes understanding. In other words, I mean that's that sounds nice, but it really it's really way beyond nice. Because actually, the things that we get anxious over really are often very important. Now, I will also say that as you get older and you look back on the things that caused you great anxiety when you were a child or when you were younger in in life, the things that you're so worried about, old people look back and just shake their heads and are like, and you just have no idea It seems like such a big deal, but it's just not a big deal, sonny you know that that kind of thing, that perspective that we get on life is something that we that we grow into many times, and so you know i I remember things that made me that that had me all twisted up in knots when I was in high school, and I just kind of laugh about them how meaningless why why get all worked up and twisted up in knots over where the high school youth group was going to go on a mission trip I mean like that, that's something that actually happened to me and that's absurd, right? why be Why be all twisted up in knots and anxious over that? I've grown in my, grown in my perspective as I've gotten older, right? That's just one little area. And you look at the, look at little kids and, and their fear of what they're gonna miss, what they're gonna miss out on. And, and it's like the end of the world has arrived. And it's just something silly, right? I wanted to sit next to mommy today. Okay. <laughs> Tomorrow, <laughs> this isn't worth getting worked up over, right? And yet, it's not, it's not that it, it, we, we do grow in our perspective in, in having a bigger picture, but all of, all, all of mankind grows in that ability, right? That's a common grace that God has given, that that we grow, we, we gain perspective, and we begin to realize that some of the things that we're, we were anxious over were not worth being anxious over. But not everybody actually grows in that perspective. And when you see somebody who the older they get, the more anxious they become, you begin to realize how scary it is to not grow in that perspective, right? Someone who's paranoid and thinks that everybody is out to get them and is anxious and worried about things that have absolutely no meaning and think that it's proof that... You see that there's there's a mental illness there, right? And yet, it's also wrapped up in sin. And this is often the case with mental illness, that there's certain sins bound up in a physical disease. That shouldn't be surprising to us. STIs are the same thing, aren't they? A physical disease wrapped up in a sin. Okay, now, even... The non-Christian that grows in perspective and begins to understand that there are many things that we've been anxious about that you should just let go of, not be so worried about. As a matter of fact, um, you know, the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, isn't a Christian song, right? There's no true peace of God that's being proclaimed in that, but the world begins to see that, you know, it's better to probably just lighten up. As a matter of fact, smoke some weed, they would say. They would be wrong, because that's not going to give you a peace that passes understanding. That's not going to give you a peace that surpasses comprehension, because what they're getting to is a very small perspective still they're never getting to the fact that the Lord is near. That's the perspective with which, as Christians, our eyes are opened and we're able to look at the world and recognize that this kind of thing that we are so concerned about doesn't matter, even if it's a much bigger deal than anybody who would bother singing that song would think to to not worry about. what sorts of things is somebody going to sing that song about what you know what sorts of things are they going to they're not going to they're not going to they're not going to play that song for you if your wife dies or your husband dies right and yet the peace that passes all understanding is something that is absolutely essential right then and right there true peace A peace that's much deeper and that truly cannot be understood apart from God being at work in your heart, in your mind. How can you be at peace? How can you respond the way that you do if you have the peace of God if you're burying a loved one? That is beyond comprehension. This peace of God is not something that the world can understand. It's not something that the world can even have. Nothing can explain having peace at those times in our life except God being near and him being at work in us. Now, think of biblical examples of times where you see this kind of peace or you see the lack of it. Two two examples popped into my mind as I was thinking about this. One of them is Peter stepping out of the boat into the stormy sea. He was totally at peace, wasn't he? As he stepped onto the water... The peace that he had is way beyond our comprehension, isn't it? Yes, it was also faith, right? But think of of the peace required to just step out of the boat into the stormy water to walk towards Jesus. And you think of the peace that Jesus had sleeping in the boat while the storm was raging around and all the rest of the men in the boat were thought, thought they were about to die. And they're so upset at Jesus because he's still asleep. Wake up. Can't you see we're going to die? But Jesus is completely at peace, isn't he? That peace is totally beyond the apostles' comprehension at that moment, right? Because they don't realize God is near. But Peter begins to realize, God is near. I see Jesus. God is near. I'm perfectly safe. And so he steps out of the boat. Another, this is at another time, You remember, right? It's two different stories. But he, but he steps out of the boat. He has that kind of peace that is mind-boggling. It's beyond our comprehension. We can't understand it. Another example is Jesus going to the cross. Think of the peace that he had the night before at the dinner in the garden. What did he do? He took his requests to God, didn't he, in prayer? And he was sweating Drops of blood, right? And so it was, it was a truly, truly momentous level of stress and strain that he was under as he looked forward to the coming days, right? To the next day. And yet, what did God give him? When he leaves the garden under arrest, through all the way to the end, when he's on the cross, what do you see? You see him perfectly at peace with what's coming, don't you? He knows what's coming. He's, he's, he's going towards his death. He knows he'll be crucified. And he is at peace. He's at peace until when? He's at peace until he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is no longer near and his peace is shattered. Now, the point of bringing that up is not to say, yeah, yeah. I mean, see, even Jesus, there are times when he's not at peace, right? No, the point is that he suffered the wrath of God and God hid his face from his only begotten son so that you can have peace. So that you can be at peace with God. So that God will not have to hide his face from you because of your sins. He hid his face from his son. Because of your sins. And now you can have true peace. That truly is beyond our comprehension, isn't it? And so no, you don't have to look forward to that time when God turns his face from you and think and wonder whether this thing that you're going through now is God turning his face from you. No, If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God is there with you. God is near. He has not turned his face against you or away from you, but he is with you. And he will guard your heart, and he will guard your mind. Now, what does it mean to guard your heart? Sometimes we'll tell young people who are getting interested in somebody, you know, romantically, guard your heart, right? Have you heard that sort of thing before? Guard your heart. Now, what what do we mean when we say that to to a teenager or a 23-year-old? Guard your heart. What does that mean? It means that You want to protect them from getting too emotionally wrapped up too quickly, right? You don't want them to fall in love too quickly. You don't want them to be hurt if things don't work out. And so guard your heart. But it means more than that, right? There's... When you say guard your heart, what you're really saying is you're talking about their desires, Guard your heart, has reference to their desires. You don't want somebody to have their commitments and their desires over a, a relationship. That may or may not work out given to driving them into poor decisions. You see, if your heart is not guarded, you fall headlong in love with somebody and, you know, you can argue about the usage of that term, falling in love. But, but the point is that when your desires are set on something, it's very difficult for you to objectively look at the world and say, this is good or this is bad, this is wise or this is unwise, right? Once your heart is set on something, once your desires are wrapped up in something, then you're at, you are vulnerable at that moment to all sorts of things. Ultimately to being hurt, to falling into sin, various dangers with not guarding your heart. <clears throat> but here we have the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts. So it is the peace itself that is being spoken of as guarding your heart again in speaking of guarding your heart i think it <clears throat> is clear that it has reference to your desires protecting your desires in other words if you have true peace from god then You will have proper desires. Good desires. Your heart will be turned towards the right things because that is what it means to have your heart guarded. You can you can flip it around and, and see the inverse of it as well. You can see that improper desires destroy true peace. Now this is where we begin to see some some confusion enter into the picture with regard to this peace. You know, I said when things are important or when things that you care about are threatened, those aren't necessarily the same thing, right? An awful lot of people are very anxious over something that is bad for them, that they desire. So it's it's very easy to become anxious over an idolatry. As a matter of fact, it's practically impossible not to have anxiety the moment that you have an idol. The moment idolatry enters into your heart... You are not going to have the peace of God in that. The moment you have an idol, you have to protect the idol rather than God protecting you, right? And all of a sudden you realize you're not sovereign like God is. You're not omnipotent like God is. You don't have the power to protect your idol. And so you become very anxious about it. And so, your desires need to be guarded, your heart needs to be guarded. But if you give your heart to anything besides loving God, first and foremost, then peace is impossible. Improper desires destroy true peace. But true peace protects you from falling into improper desires in the first place. It guards your heart. Now, this, this is ultimately the root behind Christians not wanting to ask for humility, for example. And I, you've, you've certainly heard this before, you know, be careful what you ask for, be careful what you wish for, and among Christians, be careful what you pray for, right? And generally what that means is be careful not to pray for anything that would be good for you, but that would be painful in the process of getting there. In a minute. This is absurd, Right? But what's going on there? What you're seeing is you're seeing a good desire. Humility is a good thing, right? A desire for humility would be a good thing. But then you're seeing the process of putting sin to death along the way of getting there. You're seeing that it's going to require surgery on your heart by God. You're seeing that it's going to be done with a sword. And it's not looking real fun in the process, right? And so, maybe I won't pray for humility just now. Or, uh, you know, what's the, uh, the old quip? God, oh, God give me, uh, uh, what is it? I don't think it's, you know, God give me purity just not yet. Right? God give me humility, just not yet. there's, There's sins that I still want to give myself over to. But I want to end up in a good place. Well, to have peace will guard your heart so that your desires will be proper. And you will be able, if you have true peace, okay? If you have this peace, and it does boggle the mind, it does surpass comprehension, that you would be able to pray for humility knowing that the process will indeed be painful. You'll be able, because that peace of God that surpasses comprehension will guard your heart and you will seek that fruit in your life. but not just your heart will be guarded, but also your mind. And what is it that you do with your mind? You think. So not just your desires, but your thoughts will be protected, will be guarded, if you are living in that peace that passes understanding. True peace means having Proper thoughts, just like it means having proper desires. And also, just like improper desires destroy true peace, so improper thoughts destroy true peace. Now, what do I mean by improper thoughts? Well, any sort of false belief that you have about God will lead, ultimately, to not being at peace, The moment that you think that God is capricious, you can't have peace resting in him, can you? He's no longer a solid rock upon which you can rely and rest on, knowing that though the oceans roar and dash against it, you are safe and secure. It's like trying to balance on a snowball in the ocean if God is capricious. just going to flip over. You're going to be dumped over, right? the only question is, how long is it going to be? Or what if you believe that God is a harsh taskmaster? You can't be at peace, can you? All you can do is worry about what He's going to demand of you and whether you've done a good enough job. Any false belief that you have is going to is is completely incompatible with this sort of true peace that he speaks of here. So true peace means having your mind and your heart in Christ Jesus. True peace means being at peace with God and it means being at peace with your neighbor right we see that first earlier in the in the chapter and then you see this peace within yourself as you look at the world as you see your own desires as you see your own thoughts you realize that if you have the peace that comes from god your desires will be purified Your thoughts will be clarified. Now, he immediately proceeds into the kinds of thoughts that we're supposed to give ourselves to, right? Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure. And we're gonna, we're gonna look at that, not this morning, but in coming weeks. But you see the flow here of him then saying, now, speaking of your mind and your thoughts, what exactly are you thinking on? What exactly are you desiring? But before we get there, I've been talking a lot about this piece, and the question may be on your minds, this sounds wonderful, I would love to have that kind of peace, I would love to be done with anxiety, I would love to be done with these evil desires, these idolatries that lead me into further anxiety and not being at peace with God and not being at peace with my brother, but how do I get that? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This reminds me of the book of James. Right at the beginning verse 5, chapter 1, "...but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Is that a man who's at peace? Driven by the wind, tossed, turning, double-minded, back and forth. That's not a man who's at peace, right? And so in both cases, what you see is the centrality of prayer in being at peace and having peace in our hearts. In both places were commanded to go to God. In James, we're told that he gives to all generously and without reproach. Here in Philippians, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this is where you begin to see that There are good things and there are bad things that we can desire. And when you begin to take your requests to God, instead of holding them in your heart and being anxious about them, all of a sudden you've got to figure out whether what you're going for is something good or something bad. What sorts of bad things might you be worried about? Well, you might be concerned about your own money, about your own reputation, about your own glory and honor, about your own sin being found out. You might be concerned about good things, like food, clothing, shelter. When you go to God, you see those things, those thoughts, your desires. and You set them before God and you realize it's a mixed bag, isn't it? There's good, there's bad. Even among the good, there's bad motives. But go to God. Make your request known to Him. And He will give you peace. Let's pray.